Hosea chapter 4 begins a very long section in the book of Hosea and is speaking primarily to the nation of Israel. A few references here and there along the way to uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. But remember, as I said last time, uh, Hosea is a prophet that was centering on the sins and the prophecies relating to their sins of the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. The southern kingdom, Judah, was also being spoken to by a different prophet, Isaiah, at about the same time. And also, along with Hosea, we also know that Amos was speaking to the Israelite nation about the same time as Hosea was. Uh, So there were a few prophets speaking in each of the two kingdoms and warning them about the things that are going to come if they don't repent, if they don't turn from their wicked ways. Now, the kingdom of Judah had a distinct advantage because in Judah, every single king that succeeded the previous king was a descendant of David. It was a Davidic dynasty that had continued throughout their existence from the time of Solomon, or David actually, through Solomon, until the time of the Babylonian captivity. Not so in the northern kingdom. None of the kings of the northern kingdom were related to David. Uh, and many of them had a short period of time when there was a dynastic rule where the son would take the reign after the father died and so on. But that usually ended in assassination or some other means by which God replaced that particular dynasty with another group of individuals who would come to power in Israel. And it caused for a great deal of difficulty in the nation. But one of the things that stands out with regard to the nation of Israel is that the kingdom was ruled out of one particular location in Samaria, which was part of the tribe of Ephraim. And it is there that they established their capital. They had a calf that was built in the southern part of Ephraim to worship originally to bring the people to that location to worship Jehovah God, even though it was a calf and a terrible misrepresentation of God. And it became a very bad thing over time because it distracted the people of Israel from worshiping Jehovah and they began to worship other gods instead of or in addition to uh, Jehovah God. And it became a really major issue for the people. There was also another calf made way up in the northern section of the nation of Israel, up in the territory of Dan. And for a similar reason, the people who lived in that area would find it more convenient to go to worship God at that location rather than coming all the way down to the southern border of the nation of Israel. So they had a religious system that began with the worship of Jehovah, but it it very quickly turned away from God and began to emphasize other gods. And that's one of the things that Hosea is going to be speaking against, among other things. But we're going to find here in chapter 4, after he has given himself as a picture, an illustration of the terrible disappointment that God had with his people, and he uses himself, by God's prompting, as a means of illustrating God's disgust with his people. They were to be what God considered to be his bride. 
and they had committed spiritual adultery. They had walked away from God. And here is where that illustration that Hosea gave in the first three chapters of the book of Hosea comes to an end, and now he focuses specifically on the sins and the condemnation that comes from those sins by a heavenly kingdom that is established that they have rejected. So he begins in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying this, Hear the word of the Lord. That word hear in the Hebrew language is shema. And you may be familiar with, in the Mosaic Covenant, there was a ironic blessing, an ironic command, ironic statement that was memorized by almost every Jew. And it is known by them today as well. It's the uh, declaration that the Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that word here, Shema, is the title that they give that particular statement of faith. So Hosea is beginning with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the word of the Lord. You children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. That's a very, very severe statement to open up this prophetic word that he's bringing to the people of Israel. He's giving them this dark warning, pay attention to this, listen carefully, hear this word of the Lord, because the Lord is going to speak a charge against you, and he needs to make sure they understand that he is not happy with them. And it's for all of the inhabitants of the land, both leaders and followers as well. He continues in that same verse 1, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now, some of your translations are a little bit different than that. They might say uh, uh, faithfulness instead of truth, kindness instead of mercy. But the original Hebrew words are very emphatic. The word for truth is the word emet. Uh, by the way, Tracy would be very familiar with that because one of her dogs was named Emmet. Uh, but Emmet means truth. It's translated truth 99% of the time. Some of the translations didn't want to use that word for some reason, and they translated it instead faithfulness, which is a completely different word. It has similar meaning, but it's not quite the same as what I believe Hosea was trying to convey through the Spirit of God. And the word mercy, chesed, is the original Hebrew language, and it can be sometimes translated loving kindness, and it's most often translated mercy. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is merciful. And that word mercy is chesed. It's a very, very wonderful word that is used throughout the word of God. And it has a very depth of meaning when you think of the God who gives mercy. His new uh, day, every day, is filled with mercy. Uh, that's what the prophets declare. His mercies are new every morning. And so he's talking about the fact that these people in Israel already in this mid-range period of time between the time that they were founded as a nation until the time that they will be uh, delivered into the hands of the Assyrians, they have lost the truth. And how important is the truth? You know, we focus a lot of our time in the New Testament on God's Word as being 
the word of truth. And Jesus himself spoke about the word as being the truth. Jesus spoke about himself because he is the word as being the truth. And there is an absolute truth that we recognize in the word of God. It's not a generic truth. It isn't a relative truth. It is an absolute truth. And yes, two plus two does equal four. As far as the Bible is concerned, there are absolute truths and they are spoken in the word of God as truth. For that is what that is indeed, the word of God. It is all truth. But they had forgotten his truth. And so much of our society today has set aside the word of God and has called it nothing more than a myth or a book written by people who really didn't have any connections. Uh, it's just a, a whole bunch of stories that aren't related. They are so far from understanding the Word of God. And that is one of the things that um, we would expect in the last days. As a matter of fact, David had written about that in Psalm 1. And it's a beautiful picture, really, of our civilization as we know it today. And it was also that which was happening in Hosea's day. And it's found again in chapter 1 of the book of Psalms, and it reads like this, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The ungodly don't believe in the truth of God's word. They've set it aside. They have gone their way and they will not turn to God for wisdom. They will not turn to God for the guidance that his word gives. They will not turn to God for the help that he wants to give them. And so much is available to them in regard to those very things. He is truth and he is merciful. And the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom or that is really the essence of wisdom. Seeking wisdom brings knowledge, and knowledge enhances our understanding of the truth. So it's all important. The people of Israel had turned aside from that, and they have become a very wicked people indeed. And he's telling them under no uncertain terms that they've got to either repent and turn from this, or they are going to experience judgment. Now, in chapter 4, this book, this chapter is all about God's charge against the nation of Israel. And again, I want to finish that verse completely, where it's starting with uh, the middle of the verse, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint. With bloodshed upon bloodshed. Oh, if that's not like us today, I don't know what is. There is so much similarity in what Hosea is speaking against with regard to people of God in the nation of Israel 
that just simply applies so very, very well with what is going on in our nation here. But I want us to make sure that we understand that we can always look at this and say, well, they were like this, or they acted this way, or they didn't believe, or they turned away from God. Or we might say it about our own nation. Our own nation is doing the same thing. And we might be willing to condemn our leaders, our governmental agencies, our education systems, our higher authorities, whatever they may be. But I suggest to you that we need really to look at this from a personal level. We need to look at this and see, is there anything in this that is speaking directly to me and to you? And I believe that we should do that very carefully because I'm convinced that God wants us to not pursue any of these things that are recorded here. And you may think, well, hey, that's not that much of a problem. I don't have an idol in my backyard to worship some other god. Well, that's not the whole of what's going on in here. We're going to be talking about pretty much anything that is very common among even believers in the church today. And it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be considered. And it needs to be addressed. So let's read on. Verse 3 says, Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So God is going to bring judgment. He's warning the people. They have been a very, very evil society, and they will be judged for that. He says in verse 4, Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priest before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Notice that he pretty much includes every segment of society. The common people, the priests, the prophets, the women, the children, everyone is guilty. And notice what he says in verse 6. Underline this. Take a very, very close look at this and consider this. He says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. My people perished for the lack of knowledge. He'll say that again later as well. This is something that we need to understand. It is what we need to deal with those sins that so easily beset us. The knowledge of God's word and understanding of what God expects of us and from us in obedience to him. One of the wonderful things that we find in the Old Testament is the fact that the just shall live by faith. Hosea is going to say that in another chapter. There's no doubt about the fact that Hosea believed in the need to have faith in God's ability to save to the uttermost. And it is because of his willingness to save and to extend his mercy that he and all of the other prophets have been able to write, in spite of all of their sin, that there is still hope if they would return to God. But this people has forgotten God. They have become a people who lacks knowledge, not because it wasn't available to them, but because 
it tells us here, you rejected that which was available to you. So the blame isn't on God for not providing them with the ability to collect that amount of knowledge through the writings of the prophets. He did that. They just wouldn't listen to the prophets. They just wouldn't listen to the word of God. They wouldn't receive it and obey it. And how much more for us in these last days is it important for us to realize that we must indeed be obedient to what God commands. That's not to say that we're under the law of Moses. We're not. But we are to be obedient children by faith, trusting in Him, that we, because of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us, have been enabled to obey His command. And what's His command to us? It all boils down to this one statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love one another. That's it. Love God, love one another, and in that love, in that special kind of love, that agape love, we are fulfilling all of the law and the prophets. Micah 6, 8 is a very important portion of Scripture. And it's a song that we used to sing over and over again. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the things that make it so that we can, if we are living by the power of the Holy Spirit, to embrace the truth that God gives us in His Word and be able to be enabled to come to that place where we are being transformed on a daily basis one day at a time, from glory to glory, into His image. But we must be very careful to study God's Word, to rightly divide His Word of truth, so that we won't be ashamed in the last day. That's what they were neglecting. That's what they had set aside, to go after other gods, because they thought the other gods would prosper them. They thought the other gods were the cause of their prosperity. Remember I mentioned last week that this is a time in Israel's history when they were very prosperous indeed. They were living very well. Now Hosea is going to address that very thing. In verse 7 it says, The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. In other words, the more they became prosperous and, and were blessed by the Lord, instead of giving the Lord the credit, they thought, wow, look what we've accomplished. It's all about what they thought they were responsible for, bringing in the wealth that they had accumulated. It wasn't them, it was God who did it for them. Remember, in the previous chapters, Hosea was talking about that very thing with regard to his wife Gomer, who had left him and went into adulterous situations, and she thought that all of the goods that she was getting was, were coming from these other men that she was living with, when in fact Hosea was providing all of those goods. And it was an example of what God was saying to the people of Israel. He was providing for all of those things, not the other gods. And they're thinking, again in verse 7, that they have increased and more and more, and as they increase more, they in turn sinned against God, all the more. And he says, I will change their glory into shame. They're glorying in their prosperity, but it's going to become a shame to them. And they will soon find out that God's word will indeed be fulfilled. It would happen in Hosea's time. He would still be alive when that judgment of God would indeed fall. 
But he's warning them here. He's telling them, don't trust in your prosperity, your great wealth. Don't trust in the great and mighty army that your king has been building to protect you. That all goes away in a moment. Verse 8 says, They eat up sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways, and I will reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. They loved money. They were prosperous. Remember, Paul says, love is a root of all evil. And it certainly was a root of evil for this nation. But they had cast off all restraint. And that was the problem. They were going after other gods. They were unfaithful. They were committing harlotry, spiritual adultery with other gods. So much like what we are experiencing in this nation today. Every single day you can look on the internet and see article after article about the harlotry that goes on in public places, about the various abominations that are considered to be normal these days. It's got to be paid for, friends. There's got to be a price that is paid by this nation because God is the same today as He was then. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing is new under the sun. God has not changed. Judgment will, I believe, indeed fall on this nation if we continue down this path that the Israelites had already done. They should be an example to us. But nobody considers these things in today's society. We believe as a nation that we're invincible. That ain't so. And you're all, I believe, seeing the result of such foolish concepts as what are being propagated in this nation, in our government, in our schools. There's a price to pay for these things. Well, verse 11 says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine, and slave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff, or their divining rods. Their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They have offered sacrifices on the mountain tops and burned incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore, the daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. Take a look at what he's saying here. This idolatry of Israel is widespread. It's all over the nation. But not only is it talking about the worship of idols, that's a major thrust, but also take note of the fact that what he's condemning here is the drinking of wine, new wine, which enslaves the heart. Now, some of your translations may not necessarily use the word heart here. It may have understanding or some other word that really doesn't convey, I think, what Hosea is trying to convey here. The word in Hebrew is indeed heart. And again, it's one of those words in Hebrew that's used throughout the Old Testament, repeated, and 99% of the times it's translated heart, sometimes bosom. But that's really the focus. The heart is the heart of the issue. And the heart can be enslaved by strong drink. I want us to turn first to another area of Scripture that I think will give us an understanding from the Old Testament 
of what God thinks of with regard to strong drink. And even the drinking of wine, if it is done in excess. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, and we'll first look at Proverbs 31. Where Proverbs 31 is the last book of the Proverbs, last chapter of the book of Proverbs, and it's really thought of as the uh, proverbial woman. The woman of virtue is talked about here in the book of Proverbs in chapter 31. But before it gets to that virtuous woman, it has this to say about the drinking of wine. And it's addressing, addressing the kings and princes, which in today's time would probably be a reference to the leaders of our society or the leaders in our church, for instance. Pastors like myself should take heed to what is said in these few verses in chapter 31 of the book of Proverbs. Verse 4, Proverbs 31, begins with this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his mercy, or misery rather, no more. So what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is that the real use of such strong drink is for those who are near death or for those who are in such terrible, terrible struggles that they need to have some kind of mind-soothing beverage that will help them forget their misery. The drinking of wine was common throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this isn't to say that drinking wine is wrong. Paul does address drinking wine. He talks about that with Timothy, for instance. He tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul knew that Timothy had a bit of an issue uh, in his stomach, and the wine would help soothe that Apparently, maybe an ulcer or just from stress. I don't know exactly what the indication is in scriptures. We're not told about his infirmity, but drink a little wine, Paul told him, for your stomach's sake. And Peter addresses the idea of consuming a great amount of wine back in the book of Acts in chapter 2, where Peter and his friends who are with him are accused of being drunk with wine. They weren't. Peter says, that's not possible, it's only the ninth hour of the day. And so it indicates that there couldn't have been enough wine drunk throughout that short period of the day for them to have gotten intoxicated. And that leads to the assumption that, and the understanding, according to the documentation that we do have in first century, first century winemaking, that it was very low in alcoholic content. No like what wine is today. In other place, Paul tells us, the church, that we are to be not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a difference. He's not talking about being drunk with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is far better. But don't be drunk with wine. Be careful. Don't allow wine to become something that controls you as it had been the case with the people of Israel according to chapter 4 verse 11 that we just read. But before we get back to Hosea, I'd like to take you one more place in the book of Proverbs and that's in verse 
29 of chapter 23. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Chapter 31 was about kings and princes. That is not for them to drink wine or hard drinks, intoxicating drinks. Here in chapter 23, he's addressing the common people, all people, whether they're wealthy or poor, whether they're leaders or servants, they're all grouped into this one simple category. Verse 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake, that I may seek another drink? In other words, when you're intoxicated, you don't really have the sensitivities that you have when you are sober. And he's saying here in a very, very poetic form, stay away from that which intoxicates because you're going to be just as bad at this guy as this guy who was saying, hey, they beat on me, but I didn't feel it, so let's have another drink and let's get started all over again. Happy hour is something that is very commonplace in these days, and I am so, so very saddened when I see that kind of thing slipping into the church, and it is. There are several churches throughout this nation who embrace the drinking of beer or some other beverage like that in the services. And I just say this is not what God allows for the people of God. Now, again, I'm not here to say that drinking wine is forbidden. I'm just saying that drinking of wine should be very carefully done, if done at all. As far as leadership is concerned, I'm convinced that we have no place in our lives as leaders in the church to allow for intoxicated drink to come to our lips. And so I take that stand for myself personally. I guess enough said about that. Let's move on to verse 12. Again, I want to read that. It says, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols. They seek to have answers from the divining staff that they have before them. That is an absolute abomination to God. Divining was spoken against by the Lord in the Mosaic writings, and they should have known, but they did not listen. They took advantage of the things that the Gentiles did, and they thought that they were the way that they should go in order to receive the benefits of the blessings that were coming to the Gentiles, they observed how prosperous the Gentiles had been, and they assumed that it's because their gods were blessing them. They were wrong. They offer sacrifices, it says in verse 13, on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths. They set up altars all over the land. That was an abomination also. God wanted to have one altar, and that was to be in Jerusalem. They had gone far from that. 
They had committed adultery, harlotry. Their brides committed adultery. Their daughters committed adultery. And the reason they did is given in the next passage. In verse 14 it says, I will not punish your daughters when they committed harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, because for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with ritual harlots. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. The men are the responsible people in their household. And because they have gone astray, their wives and their daughters have gone astray. But the men are to blame. They're the leaders in the household. They're the ones who would bear responsibility in training up their children in the way that they should go, and he would not depart from them. But that is not what they did. And God is saying, you are going to be judged because of this. Verse 15 continues, and it says this, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, listen carefully. Now he's turning his attention to Judah, the southern kingdom. He's saying, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Aden, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. He's warning Israel, Judah rather, in this verse 15, do not become like the Israelites. He says, don't go up to Gilgal, which was in the Northeast Territory uh, across the eastern side of the Jordan River in the territory of uh, one of the uh, tribes of the Northern Kingdom. Or, don't go to Beth Aven. Now, there's no idea given to us where this Beth Aven is. It means house of idols. But the implication is that it is a play on words and the city that it is most likely referring to is Bethel, the house of God. That city Bethel is in the northern area of the region of Benjamin, which was in the control of the people of Israel, of the northern ten tribes. Bethel was where God met with Jacob. It's a very famous place, and it's a very holy place. And if that play on words is what Hosea intended, it seems to be implying that the city of Bethel has become a place of harlotry also. What a shameful, disgraceful thing that has taken place. So he's warning the people of Judah, don't become like your brothers and sisters in Israel. And then in verse 16, he continues against Israel and he says, For Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn calf or a stubborn heifer. If you've ever been involved in farming with cows, if you've ever seen cows in the fields, they're a very amazing animal. Nothing much will cause them to move unless they're frightened for some reason. But that doesn't usually case when usually is not the case when they're in a pasture and they're being well fed and taken care of. They're pretty much a very, very stable beast. But you try to get a heifer up the ramp into a cart or up the ramp to be slaughtered. And you'll find that that's not an easy task. What a heifer will do is it will lock its front legs and refuse to go an inch further. And you're not going to be able to push that heifer anywhere. That's the idea of what is being conveyed here. It's almost like he's saying, don't become like those 
calves who stiffen their front legs and will not move an inch back to God. He says later in that same verse, verse 16, Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. They're backsliders. And that's a great definition of a backslider. One who will not budge anymore. Will not continue to be allowed to move in the direction of serving God. Standing against and not being willing. That's backsliding. But like a lamb in the open country. Now a calf in the open country doesn't usually have any difficulty getting around unless there are wild animals like lions that might be preying for them. But uh, for the most part, they are generally a safe uh, animal because of their size and, uh, and, and the, they don't need shepherding like lambs do. But if you let a lamb get loose out into the open field, he's dead. Uh, he's, there's no way that he's going to survive, either because he's going to be attacked by a lion or a fox or some other wild animal, or he'll just wander and wander and not find enough grass to graze on, and he'll die of starvation, or no water to drink. He'll just die because he hasn't got the sensibility built into him or her to do it on his own. He needs a shepherd. All lambs need shepherds. He says, these people of Israel are like lambs in an open country. He says in verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now, just as a word of clarification, whenever we find Ephraim written like this, with a judgment attached to it, it is a reference not only to the tribe of Ephraim, but it is a reference to the northern ten tribes of Israel, whose capital was in Ephraim, as I mentioned earlier. And Ephraim is oftentimes substituted for the nation of Israel, and it is here. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Look at what God is saying to the people. Let him alone. I'm reminded as I read that, that in the New Testament, Paul wrote about those kinds of people who had turned away from their God or refused to accept the truth of God. And it tells us that God gives them over. In verse 27 of Romans chapter 1, I'll read it for you quickly. He says this, Likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased or reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. That's what Paul was condemning in the New Testament, obviously talking about homosexual activities. Here in the Old Testament, the Lord is speaking of an adulterous relationship and it doesn't really make any difference whether it is a homosexual relationship or a relationship between a man and a woman outside of marriage. It is still fornication. It is still against God's word. It is still excuse me, sin, and it must be dealt with. Paul says they've come to, uh, rather, Hosea says, they've come to the place where they no longer will listen. And as a result of their impossible attitude as heifers who will not be budged, 
God is giving them over to a reprobate mind. Let that one who stands against God in such a way as this be left alone. What a terrible, terrible word of condemnation that is given against the nation of Israel. The last two verses in chapter 4. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. That speaks volumes to me about our own nation as well. Oh, they fit very well into this category, my friends. And he says, lastly, the wind has wrapped up in, wrapped her up rather, in its wings. They cannot escape. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They will come to a place of being ashamed of what they have done against their God. All that they have been unwilling to do, all that they have rejected, God has recognized. He has seen. Nothing is done in a corner. Nothing is done behind closed doors. God sees all. Remember Elijah. was given a word from the Lord. And he was told by the Lord to cut into the wall in a room that he was brought to. And so Elijah broke through the wall. And as he broke through the wall, he was able to see what was going on in the room next door. God asked him, What do you see, Elijah? And he saw such terrible things pornographic images, all kinds of terrible things that were going on. And it was a disgusting view in Elijah's eyes. And God says, you are looking into the minds of the people of Israel. God sees. There's nothing you can hide, nothing I can hide. That's why it's so important for us to realize when God is speaking so condemningly against the acts of this people Israel, Let us look in the mirror and see ourselves and examine ourselves. And if we have anything that we need to turn to God for help in and anything that would cause us to be set aside by God, if we are to continue down that path to the point where he says, let him alone, let her alone. Oh, please, people, let's turn to God and ask for his forgiveness right now in this place right where you are, if there is sin in your life, deal with it. Let there be a repentant heart. Confess your sins to your God. He's faithful and just to forgive. And His righteousness is available to all. For that's our God. He's promised it. He hasn't yet come to that place where He's calling you, as He did the nation of Israel, into the corner where they cannot escape. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the power of God in our lives to enable us, to set us free from the burden of sin. All our sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. All our sins have been forgiven. All our sins have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west. That's what God has promised. But let us not harbor any sin in our daily day living. Until we meet again, my friends, be blessed.
Be encouraged. Be washed in the blood of the Lamb. God bless.